take your Bibles this morning, turn to the book of Numbers, book of Numbers today. We are going to begin our study in Numbers by reading uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. It's going to kind of get us started. We're going to be kind of surveying the first five chapters of the book today. But to get us started, we will read these first uh, few verses of chapter 5, Numbers 5, 1 through 4. The words will appear on the screens behind me. Follow along with me as I read. Here's what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or who has a discharge, and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, and that they might not defile their camp, in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so, they put them outside the camp, as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Ask God's blessing on our time in his word today. Father, thank you for your word. We know that all of it is inspired, all of it is profitable for teaching, for correction, for, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. Uh, even these parts of numbers, which sometimes we don't know what to do with. And I pray that this morning you would teach us what to do with them. I pray that your spirit would write them onto our hearts, illuminate our hearts so that we understand what you're saying to us, apply it to our hearts, make our hearts soft. And use our study of your word today to change us more into the image of your son, Jesus, our Lord, in whose name we ask. Amen. We are uh, returning to our series in the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. We've been uh, off and on working our way through these first five books of the Bible here on Sunday mornings, taking breaks here and there uh, as, as we get to different things. Most recently, we finished the book of Leviticus uh, a couple of months ago, and then we took a break and, and spent some time thinking about Christmas, and, and then in the month of January, we, we, we just finished talking about our identity in Christ. And now here we are back to the, the next phase of this study of the first five books, book number four, the book of Numbers. And just to kind of get us back into the swing of things to remind us of where we are in the story, it's probably helpful to remember some of the stuff that we looked at in Exodus and in Leviticus. Exodus, you might remember, ended with the people at the mountain called Sinai. They were at Sinai. Moses had received the Ten Commandments and brought it to the people and told them about the tabernacle, and the people had given gifts for the building of the tabernacle. And, and Exodus ended with the tabernacle being constructed. Do you remember that? They, they built the tabernacle. And then, and then at the end of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, you see the Shekinah glory of God. That's a word that doesn't occur in the Bible. It's a word that, that Jewish commentators use to describe that cloud that we do read about, the cloud and the fire, the visible, tangible representation of God's presence, that Shekinah, which means dwelling, glory of God descended from heaven in Exodus chapter 40, and it filled up the tabernacle. Do you remember this in Exodus 40? It filled up the tabernacle to such an extent, it says that Moses and Aaron couldn't even get in. They couldn't get into the tabernacle uh, to be with the Lord because it was filled up with the presence of God to such an extent. And that illustrated, we said, it illustrated for us what we came to call the problem of separation. The problem of separation. That is to say the problem of a separation between a holy God 
and an unholy people. The fact that Moses, God's chosen prophet, and Aaron, the priest, the anointed priest, high priest of God, couldn't get into the tabernacle illustrates the fact that no unholy person can be in the presence of a holy God. And so when we went into the book of Leviticus, more recently, we saw that as being the, the proposed solution, God's solution, at least temporarily, to the problem of separation. And so we looked at the book of Leviticus, and we saw the giving of the sacrificial system and, and the, the laws for clean and unclean and cleansing and just all of that stuff, which is God's way of saying, here's provisionally how you are going to be a holy people so that I can dwell in your midst. And so that's some of the stuff that we looked at in the book of Leviticus. And, and then by the end of the book of Leviticus, we saw Moses and Aaron being able to go into the tabernacle because the sacrifices were there. The, the blood was being shed. Atonement was being made, right? We should also point out, uh, just in terms of the chronology, the storyline of all of this, that everything that happens between Exodus 40 and Numbers chapter 1 is about one month, Okay, it's taken us a lot longer to kind of go through all that and, and take it apart a little bit at a time and think about it. Uh, but, but you know, at the end of Exodus 40, you can fact check this. In Exodus 40, it says that the tabernacle was constructed on the first day of the first month of the second year after Israel came out of Egypt. Okay, and then here, if you look at the first verse of Numbers chapter 1, okay, turn to chapter 1, look at Numbers 1, 1. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month of the second year, right? So if I'm doing my math right, that means one month has passed from Exodus 40 to Numbers chapter 1. So, so all the stuff that we read about in Leviticus, the giving of the sacrificial system, the, the explanation of it, the giving of the law, the teaching of the law, and the implementation of all of that, that's taken about a month. And so now here we are in Numbers chapter 1, and the Israelites are getting ready to decamp from Sinai. They're getting ready to move on from Sinai onto the next phase of their wilderness journey on their way to the promised land. Numbers, uh, the book of Numbers, as we go through it over the course of the next several weeks, a uh, few months, if we're being honest, uh, is going to cover 40 years of Israel's history. From Sinai until the plains of Moab, where Israel's going to finally stop after 40 years of wandering in the desert, which we'll talk about more when we get to it in Numbers. The book of Numbers covers that whole period. And in the course of the book of Numbers, as we mentioned last week in kind of the preview for this, we're going to see some of the, some of the really fascinating, interesting stories, some of the narratives that that maybe if you, if you grew up in church, at least you're familiar with from Israel's history. You know, the, the story of the bronze serpent comes in the book of Numbers. The, the story of the quail being given. The, the second account of water coming from the rock. That's here in the book of Numbers. Um, the story of, 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 of the pagan prophet Balaam who, who tried to prophesy against Israel and couldn't. And his donkey talked to him. That, that odd story. That occurs here in the book of Numbers. And I'm really excited to get through all those. Uh, I, I love teaching through those types of stories, and, and so we're going to get to those in the course of time in the book of Numbers. But also in the book of Numbers, we do have accounts and, and, and chapters like the ones we're looking at today, where at first glance they do appear tedious, let's say, or, or, or maybe they appear daunting at least as, as we go into them, because they do have a lot of names and they have numbers. Uh, there's a census here in chapter 1, and we have a tendency to come to passages like this in Scripture, and we have a tendency to go... I don't know what to do with this. 
right? I don't know how this is going to be pertinent to my life. And that's a legitimate concern, right? Because we're so far removed from this historically. It's a legitimate thing to say, I don't know what I'm supposed to take away from this. Let me just say this by way of encouragement to you. If that's, if that's kind of rolling around in your mind as you're kind of skimming through the first few chapters of Numbers and wondering, what, what is this preacher going to say about Numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 that's going to be of value to me? Let me give you this piece of encouragement. It it's, it's, comes in the form of a story about something that happened when I was a teenager. All right? When I was a teenager, in a youth group um, down in Virginia, we were part of a youth group that uh, encouraged all the young people to read Uh, the same passages of scripture as part of their devotions throughout the week and then when we came together on Wednesday night we would share observations share things that we learned in our devotions right and I think in this particular case we were all reading through maybe first or second Corinthians and so one particular Wednesday night we got together and and the floor was open for people to share what they had learned in their reading and it was you know like sometimes is the case with youth groups it was crickets you know nobody was saying anything and one of, the, one of the ladies who was one of the youth leaders decided she was going to kind of prime the pump, get the ball rolling, and so she was going to share what she learned in her devotional reading that day. And she said, you know, on Tuesday, I came to the reading and I thought, you know, I'm not sure that I'm going to get anything out of this with this genealogy and, and all these names that I've never heard of before, but I decided, you know, it's God's word. I'm going to be faithful to it. I'm going to read it. And as she's talking at this point, you know, we teenagers are kind of looking at each other out of the corners of our eyes like that. But she keeps talking, and she says, you know, at first it didn't, I didn't get much out of it, but then the Lord showed me a few things. I made some connections between this name and that name. And, and she kept talking, and, and by that time, even the leaders were kind of looking at each other and scratching their heads a little bit. And so she finished talking, and the gist of her, the gist of her sharing, of course, was that even though at the beginning of her reading, she didn't think she was going to get much out of it because it was one of those genealogical sections of Scripture Still, because she trusted the Lord and the Holy Spirit opened her heart and she was able to see something powerful. The Lord showed her something from his word. And so she finished sharing this and there was quiet for a second in our little youth group room and somebody said, I think you read the wrong thing. Right? And it turns out she had read something from First Chronicles or Second Chronicles instead of Second Corinthians. She'd read entirely the wrong thing for her devotions, right? But... The point still stands, doesn't it? She read something that was initially tedious to her that she didn't think she was going to get anything out of that, that on first glance didn't seem to have anything of value for her, but because it's the word of God and because the Holy Spirit speaks through his word, he still spoke to her, to her through that. And so I hope that can be an encouragement to us as we come to a passage like that in Numbers where we're reading about tribes of Israel and the census of the people, numbers of people and some laws and things there is value for us here. If we are sensitive to the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is pleased to minister his word to our hearts, there is value for us here. So this morning, we're going to go through these chapters uh, fairly swiftly. We're not going to hit every verse, obviously. It's kind of an overview of these first five chapters. And we're going to see something about holiness here. We're going to see that God's holiness both necessitates and precipitates the holiness of his people. And I hope that you understand what I mean by the, both of those terms. Maybe we should get that out of the way first of all. When I say that God's holiness necessitates the holiness of his people, that's fairly easy, right? What I mean by that, of course, is that he requires holiness from his people because he is holy. It is therefore necessary that we be holy. We saw that over and over again in the book of Leviticus. Be ye holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy, right? Simple enough. His holiness necessitates our holiness. 
But I also, this morning, want you to realize that it doesn't just necessitate it, it precipitates it. And you know what I mean by that, too, don't you? I mean, His holiness causes it to be. The holiness of God catalyzes our holiness, we could say. It births holiness in it. Or to say another way, what God requires of us, He also accomplishes in us. God's holiness necessitates, yes, but also precipitates the holiness of his people. And I think we can see that illustrated in these chapters. So we're going to see holiness in these chapters. And, and holiness is primarily distinctness. And so in Numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, we're going to see the distinctness of the nation of Israel in a couple of ways. We're going to see her distinctness. We're going to see her holiness in terms of her national holiness and we're going to see it in terms of her personal holiness. And, uh, and you'll see what I mean by that in just a minute. God's holiness both necessitates and precipitates the holiness of his people. So first of all, consider the national holiness of Israel. And we're going to see this in three ways. We're going to see the national holiness of Israel in three ways. We're going to talk about their focus. We're going to talk about their protection. And we're going to talk about their redemption their focus, their protection, their redemption. First of all, consider the focus of Israel. Look at chapter 1. Numbers chapter 1. And just to get a flavor for what we're reading here, I'm going to read a few selected verses out of the chapter. We're not going to read the whole chapter. But it opens up this way. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from twenty years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. And then, just skipping ahead to the beginning of that census, verse 20, Look at these first few verses. It says, The people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Reuben, were 46,500. Of the people of Simeon, their generations by their clans, their fathers' houses, etc., those able to go to war, verse 23, those listed of the tribe of Simeon were 59,300. And it goes on through the tribes of Israel, excluding the tribe of Levi, as we're going to talk about in just a minute. Levi was excluded to be reserved for the religious service of Israel. Uh, and then uh, Joseph's tribe was split into two, Manasseh and Ephraim, so there's 12 tribes still total that you're going to read about through the uh, first chapter of Numbers. And the number of soldiers there is listed uh, at the end of each paragraph. So that as you get to the end or towards the end of the chapter, if you skip down to verse 46, it gives you a sum of all of the, the people in the census, all those 20 years old and upward, the males 20 years old and upward. It says all those listed were 603,550. Now, right there, we have to actually pause. Um, a lot of scholars have pointed out that there are some some internal inconsistencies at this point and some historical inconsistencies when you think about these numbers. And uh, probably those are due not to any mistake here, but due to a misunderstanding of the word that gets translated as thousand. Okay, so, so the word elef, the Hebrew word elef that tends to get translated thousand in military contexts almost always just refers to a war band. Okay, 
So in other words, it's not necessarily 603,000, literally, as we would think of that number. Probably what, what Moses means here in the census is that there are 603 war bands uh, throughout the people of Israel. But, and, and really, the only reason that I'm even pointing that out aside from the fact that, like, Joshua's grinning at me, aside from the fact that I'm a Bible nerd and a history nerd, the only reason that I'm pointing that out is because as you read through the book of Numbers, you may realize some, some problems with the math. A few, uh, there's a few places where you're going to realize some problems with the math, and you're going to wonder uh, why some things happened the way they did if Israel had a military that was 603,000 men strong, which, by the way, would beat any military in our world today other than the U.S. and China and Russia. You know, every other military is like half the size of this today. All right. Um, but aside from that, uh, if you encounter any of those problems, you can just kind of remember this is one of the ways, uh, this is one of the solutions that scholars have suggested. Maybe instead of thinking of these as thousands, you think of them as, as war bands. But regardless, it doesn't change the interpretation of the passage. The point that Moses seems to be giving us is that once the census is completed of Israel, they're looking at a military, and it's a respectable military. It's a military that can do what God has called it to do. This is a good-sized military force. And given the size of this military, what we would expect to happen next is that we should be told that this military is told to go and, and, uh, and march and defeat their enemies and, by all means, protect the tabernacle. Right, the tabernacle that we spent so much time in Leviticus talking about constructing and the priesthood with all the details about it. We would expect this military to, to be tasked with defending it. And it kind of looks like that's exactly what happens as you go through the book of Numbers. Especially when you go forward uh, in chapter 1, you see that they are told indeed to camp around the army. All right, to camp around the tabernacle, that is. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, the people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. And then it goes into details about which tribes are supposed to camp on which side of the tabernacle. And, and you get this very intricate picture of the tabernacle at the center of the camp as they, you know, whenever they camp and, and certain tribes on the north and south and east and west. It's a very intricate setup, right? But what I want to draw your attention to this morning is this little, ver little, little verb, uh, a preposition actually, here in verse 2, and it occurs in this translation that I'm reading, the English Standard Version, it's going to be a little bit different than any other translation that you might be reading. In verse 2 it says, they shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. If you're reading a different translation, it might say, instead of facing the tent of meeting, it might say, camp opposite the tent of meeting or camp at a distance from the tent of meeting or camp some ways off from the tent of meeting. Anybody see a translation like that if you're not reading the ESV? Okay. The reason that the English Standard Version insists on translating this as facing the tent of meeting is because every other place where this little Hebrew preposition gets used, and there are 24 of them in the Masoretic text, the Hebrew Old Testament, and I spent time this week looking at each one of them, every other place where this little preposition gets used, it gets used with this nuance of a person or a thing being placed in such a way that it faces another person or thing. It's not just at a distance, although it can include that idea too, but it's at a distance but facing. All right. 
So I think the English standard is right here in insisting on saying there to camp facing the tent of meeting. And the reason that I'm pointing that out to you is because it says something about the orientation of the camp, doesn't it? It says something about the focus of the people of Israel. Because what would you expect to happen in a military camp like this? What you would expect is for these military units to be arranged in such a way with their backs towards the tabernacle looking forward in order to defend against any potential threats that might come. You know? And don't misunderstand me. I, I'm sure that as the camp was set up, you know, they had guard units all around facing outward looking for potential threats. I'm sure that happened. But the, the point of saying it like this, the point of saying, set up your camps facing, which means, by the way, set up your tents, set up your shelters so that your entrances are facing the tabernacle, so that when you come out of your tents, when you come out of your shelters, the first thing you see when you lift your head is the tabernacle. The first thing you see is the smoke rising from the altar of burnt offering that was going up every morning, day, night. The first thing that assaults your senses is the smell of that burning. The point of that is to say to the Israelites, this is who you are. And not only this is who you are, but this is where your security comes from. This is where your focus should be trained, not on any potential threats that might come from out there, but rather where your security comes from in here. I am in your midst. The Lord your God dwells among you. This is where your focus is to be. So the first thing we see here, and, and, and by the way, that does make them probably distinct, doesn't it? This, this is a, a distinction between Israel and other cultures. Their focus is different. So we see their focus in that way. We see their protection here is, is somewhat distinct as well. Let's talk about the Levites for just a moment to get a sense of this. Look back at chapter 1 and see what God says about the Levites. Remember, in the census that's taken there in chapter 1, the Levites are exempted in terms of having men for military service. But look at what God says about the Levites instead. Chapter 1, verse 47. But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them from among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all of its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. And when the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So the Levites are exempted from military service. They are solely responsible for the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. But again, there's one thing that I want to point out to you, and it's peculiar to, or particular, I should say, to the way the English Standard Version that I'm reading from translates it. It's why, why by the way, I like to read from the ESV, because I think it gets some of these nuances that some other translations miss. You might have noticed it there in verse 53. It says, the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. If you're reading another translation, it'll say something slightly different, won't it? It'll say, keep charge of, or be responsible to take care of, Something like that. 
which are possible translations. I'm not, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that the, you know, if you're reading NIV or NAS or something, that those are bad translations, but they're missing an important nuance of the Hebrew word that's used here. The reason the ESV insists on using the word guard in verse 53 and in many other places throughout these first chapters is because it's a reference back to the way God instructed Adam in the Garden of Eden. Okay? All right, you got to make a connection here. You got to follow me on this little trail. Okay? If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, you don't need to turn there in your Bibles. You can probably remember the story pretty well. In Genesis 2.15, it talks about God planting the Garden of Eden in the east. Do you remember that? And he puts Adam in the garden, and it says he put him there to tend it and to keep it. Right? And that little word keep, that little word keep is the word that we're interested in. In Hebrew, the word keep is the word shamar, which in almost every other context means to guard. In other words, Adam's job was to tend the garden and to guard it. And by the way, this isn't something that I'm coming up with or that recent commentators have come up with. This is the way Jewish commentators have always understood the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. His job was to guard the Garden of Eden, shamar, guard it. And by extension then, when the Levites here are told to Shamar, it's the same root word, the tabernacle, the idea is not just keep charge of, it's to guard, to protect. And so Jewish commentators throughout history have always understood the Levitical priesthood to be an extension of what Adam was doing in the Garden of Eden. In fact, they worked it backwards and said Adam was the first priest and the Garden of Eden was the first temple, a kind of proto-temple. And everything in the tabernacle and the later temple was meant to echo the Garden of Eden. And the Levites were meant to be echoes of Adam. They were fulfilling the role of Adam. They were, they were guards of God's sanctuary. And so we read in verse 53 of chapter 1, the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle. And again in chapter 3, let's jump ahead to chapter 3 of Numbers. Chapter 3, verse 10, it says, You shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. And uh, if you jump ahead to chapter 3, verses 25, and talking about one of the tribes of Levi, the Gershonites, they shall, their guard duty shall be in the tent of meeting uh, involved in the tabernacle, the tent with its covering, the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the hangings of the court, the screen for the door, the court that is around the tabernacle and the altar and its cords, all the service connected with these. It's guard duty. It's how it's described. And in chapter 3, verses 31 and following, speaking about the Kohathites, it says their guard duty involved the ark and the table and the lampstand. Um, and then in verse 32, it says, Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, was to be chief over the chiefs of the Levites to have oversight of those who kept guard over the sanctuary. And again in verse 36, speaking about the Merorites, another group of Levites, their appointed guard duty. So over and over again, this word is used with the implication being that the Levite's job was to guard. Now that, as far as it goes, is, is fine because we just go, okay, well, so the priest's job was to guard the sanctuary, make sure that everything was safe in the tabernacle. You know, there's a lot of gold in there, after all. Make sure nobody wants to get in there and steal any of the gold or precious things. Fine. That can't be all that Moses means. It can't be all that the Lord means when he talks about the guard duty, the guarding work 
of the Levites. Because as we go through these chapters, what we realize is that their guarding of these things is also characterized as a guarding of the people of Israel as a whole. Look at chapter 3, verses 5 and following. Chapter 3, verses 5 and following. By the way, if you want some more uh, insight into the work of the Levites that we're not going to take time to look at today, you can look at chapter 4 here. I'm basically skipping over chapter 4 in, 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 the, in, our, in our message this morning, but you can read that, and I encourage you to read it on your own. It says more about the Levites' duties. But look at chapter 3, verses 5 and following. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, listen, and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. Isn't that interesting wording? They shall keep guard over the people of Israel. And again, look at verse 38 of the same chapter. Chapter 3, verse 38. Those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east, before the tent of meeting, toward the sunrise, were Moses and Aaron and his sons, guarding the sanctuary itself to protect the people of Israel. Friends, this isn't a, a throwaway comment. God is saying... Your protection, O Israel, comes not from your 603,000 fighting men. Your protection comes not from the, the security of your sentries or the wakefulness of them. Your protection comes from me. And to the extent that the religious observance of Israel is guarded, to the extent that the sacrificial system is ongoing, to the extent that everything is happening the way I have instructed it to happen, that is where your guard comes from. That is where your security comes from. And so there's a sense in which, although the Levites are exempted from military duty, their duty is just as important, isn't it? I mean, it's a fascinating way of thinking about about secular life, about life in general, isn't it? You see, what we're seeing here, right from the very beginning, is that Israel is different. Israel is distinct. They are to be a distinct nation, a holy nation. We see it in their focus and in the way their protection is talked about. We see it also in the redemption itself. Look at chapter 3, verse 40, uh, verse 39 and following. Moses is told to, um, to do a census of all of the firstborn uh, throughout Israel, firstborn males, uh, as well as all the males among the Levites. And, and here's what we find out in verse 39. Chapter 3, verse 39. All those listed among the Levites whom Moses and Aaron listed at the commandment of the Lord, all the clans, all the males from a month old and upward were 22,000. And the Lord said to Moses, List all the firstborn males of the people of Israel from a month old and upward, taking the number of their names, and you shall take the Levites for me. I am the Lord, instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and all the cattle of the Levites, instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of all the people of Israel. So Moses listed all the firstborn among the people of Israel, as the Lord commanded him. And all the firstborn males, according to the number of males from a month old and upward, were listed as 22,273. All right, so do you see what's happening? God says, how many firstborn males are there among Israel? And it, it comes out, there's 22,273. And he says, how many males are there in Levi? And there's 22,000 total. 
And God's saying, there's going to be a representation here. There's going to be a substitution here. All of the firstborn, God says, belong to me. We've seen this before. We saw it in Exodus. We saw it in Leviticus. God says, all of the firstborn belong to me. This is a symbolic way of saying everything is mine. Remember with the, with the first fruits of the crops? That was the symbolism there. Bring the first fruits to the Lord because it was a symbol of saying it was all mine. And so God says, all the firstborn are mine because you're all mine. But God says, instead of taking all the firstborn of Israel, I will take Levi as a substitute. And so I'll take all of all Levites as a substitute for the firstborn of Israel. But there has to be, apparently, in the economy of God, there has to be a one-to-one -one, uh, e equality here, and it doesn't work. The math doesn't math, right? There's 22,273 in Israel. There's only 22,000 in Levi. And so there's this solution arrived at in verse 44. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine, I am the Lord. And as the redemption price for the 273 of the firstborn of the people of Israel over and above the number of the male Levites, you shall take five shekels per head and you shall take them according to the shekel of the sanctuary, etc., etc., etc. I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter. But you get the idea, right? So there's, there's a one-to-one -one equality. There's a substitution that takes place. And then there's kind of a tax imposed for the remainder. What's going on here exactly? I think there's a couple of things. First is what we just said, that God is reminding the people of Israel that they all belong to him. But he's also reminding them of an important reality, that in order for a holy God to dwell with an unholy humanity, there's always going to have to be a substitution. There's always going to have to be a redemption that takes place. There's always going to have to be a price that is paid. And that price is pictured here by this substitution of the Levites for everybody else. But isn't it interesting that even in that little picture, the picture's flawed. <laughs> Wouldn't it be so much more satisfying if you have kind of an OCD personality or even just a type A personality, wouldn't it be so much more satisfying if the numbers actually worked? But they don't work. It's almost like God is saying, I'm going to give you a picture, but even within the picture, I'm going to show you that the picture's broken. The picture's not complete. That's all it is. It's just a picture. It's just a reminder that there has to be a substitute and that eventually there's going to have to be a better substitute. There's going to be a better solution than this. Okay. Well, all of this has to do with just the national holiness of Israel. We're going to skip over chapter 4 and spend a few minutes before we run out of time in chapter 5 and see the personal holiness of Israel. God's holiness necessitates and precipitates the holiness of his people. Consider three cases of personal holiness from Numbers chapter 5. The first is in the verses that we began our, service, our, our sermon time by reading, verses 1 through 4. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge, everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord said to Moses. So the people of Israel did. Here we see personal holiness in the face of ceremonial uncleanness. And that is what's happening here. This is ceremonial uncleanness. You might remember as we were going through Leviticus, we tried to draw a distinction between ceremonial uncleanness and sinfulness. Right? Those are two different things. You can be ceremonially unclean without being sinful. And for that matter, you can be sinful without being ceremonially unclean in certain cases. 
But here what we're talking about is ceremonial uncleanness. And there's three things that are listed. There's, there's leprosy or skin disease. There's discharge. And there's contact with the dead. And God says, all of these are reasons uh, for people to be unclean and therefore put outside the camp. The reason being, God says, I'm a holy God. And I dwell in your midst. I spent a lot of time thinking about this and reading about this idea of ceremonial uncleanness and trying to find a common thread and, and reading different suggestions that commentators have about why God said these things are unclean or these things cause uncleanness and these things don't. And I don't know if I have a, a firm answer for you about why that is, but I have one suggestion that I like more and more the more I think about it. And that is that all the things that cause ceremonial uncleanness have some connection to or symbolism of death. Right? And God is a God of life. Obviously, contact with the dead is the most obvious one, right? But you can see some symbolisms in the others as well. Leprosy, for example, is death writ small, right? It's death of, of the skin. It's, it's, it's death on the outside, which if not treated or cured, becomes death or leads to death. And even the discharges uh, that, are, that are listed in Leviticus and only kind of mentioned here, whether menstrual or seminal or others, because of their connection to potential life, then their, uh, then their expelling means the lack of potential life and is therefore connected to death in that way. But whatever the, whatever the exact justification of it is, God says these things are unholy, and because they are unholy and unclean, they need to be put outside the camp. And one of the things, if you remember, that we talked about with regards to this uncleanness when we were going through Leviticus is that the way it's described, it makes it obvious that literally every single person in some way, at some time, is going to become unclean. It gets completely unavoidable completely unavoidable. So you read these first four verses of chapter five and you go, it kind of reads as though it's a small group of people outside the camp. I don't think so. I think at any given point in time, the majority of the camp is gonna be outside. Think about, think about what happens after a battle and those 603,000 people have all killed people. They're all outside the camp, they're all unclean. And so it's just a reminder, once again, of this fact that we have a problem. We have a problem that needs a solution. We have a holy God who longs to dwell with his people, but their unholiness is stopping it. Right? So we see this, this, personal un, this personal holiness in the face of ceremonial uncleanness here. Secondly, we see personal holiness in the face of actual sin. Look at verse 5 and following. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. And he goes on from there and just gives some other rules about restitution uh, for sins that are committed. So the sins that are in mind here are actual sins. We're not just talking about ceremonial uncleanness anymore. We're talking about actual sin. But it's also clearly sin that, that has some kind of fraud element to it, some kind of way in which another person is defrauded and in which restitution can be made. And so there's, there's some explanation for how that's to be done. Uh, a fifth has to be added to it and offerings have to be made and everything. But even that reminds us as we read it of all the other kinds of sins, right? This is only one very small subset of the kinds of sins that people commit. 
And by extension, then, it reminds Israel and it reminds us of all of the other sins, the sins that we commit that, that don't involve other people, to, in which restitution can't be made to other people because other people weren't actually defrauded, or in which the only other person involved is God himself. And, and how do you make restitution to God? I mean, really, when you read verses 5 through 10, you kind of left going, okay, I know exactly what to do in this very small category of sins, but I have no idea what to do in everything else. I don't know how to make it right. I don't know how to, how to even the scales. What are we going to do? We need some better solution. And then, as the chapter continues, we have personal holiness in the face even of suspicion. And I'm going to do something maybe unusual. It's not unusual for you if you've been in our church for a while, but I'm going to read a long passage of Scripture now, and I'm going to spend just a couple of minutes making a couple of observations, and then I'm going to wrap up our sermon, okay? But I want you to hear what God says in the rest of this chapter, because it's fascinating and instructive. Listen to Numbers chapter 5, verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it's hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, since he was not taken in the act, she was not taken in the act. And if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her. A tenth of an ephah of barley flour, he shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle. Are you guys paying attention? Okay, and put it into the water and the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance which is the grain offering of jealousy and in his hand the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings curse then the priest shall make her take an oath saying if no man has lain with you and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you are under your husband's authority be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse but if you've gone astray though you are under your husband's authority and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman the lord make you a curse and an oath among your people whom the lord when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away, and the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Then, all right, we're not done. Keep, keep following along. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness, and he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand, and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar, and afterward shall make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain, and her womb shall swell, and her thigh shall fall away, and the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. This is the law in cases of jealousy, when a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. 
And the man shall be free from the iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. What (laughs) is going on here? What is happening? Now listen, here's the thing. I know that our initial reaction to this is to go, oh, what a patriarchal, ridiculous, backwards, you know? And, And admittedly, through modern eyes, that's exactly how it looks. But I want you to consider something. I want you to consider the way other cultures handled this type of situation. All right. I spent a lot of time this week looking at Egyptian laws and Babylonian laws. And here's the thing. They all have, they all have clauses in their law that says uh, uh, a woman or a man who is accused of adultery, if there's, if there's proof of it, they can be killed. But if there's no proof, you can't do anything. Like, there, there's written laws like that in Egyptian law and in Babylonian law. Law of Hammurabi, for example, which is roughly the same time frame that we're talking about here in Babylon. Uh, the, law of, uh, the Code of Hammurabi says, you know, a man can't just bring an accusation against his wife without evidence and then expect to have her killed or something. It doesn't work that way. And so it looks like it's all kind of even-handed. But here's the thing. Virtually all of them have some other means by which the husbands can get at their wives. They all do. Code of Hammurabi puts it this way. The Code of Hammurabi says that a a husband can't bring a charge against his wife without evidence, but if he's convinced that there's too much scandal in the community about it, in other words, if he has lost enough face, if people are talking too much, then he can demand a trial of her innocence, and guess what the trial of her innocence is? It comes right out of Monty Python. Bind up her hands and throw her in the river. And if she floats, she's innocent. If she drowns, she's guilty. That's Code of Hammurabi. That's that's how societies deal with a husband's jealousy. All right. So in that context, I want you to imagine. (laughs) Imagine the men of Israel gathered around Moses as he's giving this instruction. And they say, all right, Moses, how are we going to handle these troublesome women, right? What are we going to do? What are we going to do when we're worried about what they're doing? Are we going to shame them publicly? Flog them? And Moses says, no, God has a solution. It involves water. And, and then they say, oh, I've heard about this. I got my Babylonian friend over there. We're going to throw them in a river, right? When, when I'm worried about their, their fidelity, we're going to throw them in a river. And if they drown, too bad. You know, if they float, then it's okay. And Moses checks his notes. <laughs> you know? No, uh, not that. We're going we're gonna to make him drink some water. Ah, okay. But we're going we're gonna to put some, like, some poison in the water, right? And if they drink it and they're okay, then, then they're innocent. But if they drink the poison and they die, then they're guilty, right? Moses turns the page over. Not poison, um, a little, little dust from the, from the tabernacle floor. Little little ink. But we're gonna make him drink it. <laughs> so so Moses, in other words, they have to drink some slightly dirty water? Like the same water that the rest of us drink all the time, because we don't have any bit of water filters. You see what's happening here? God is saying to his people doesn't matter whether you feel jealous. It doesn't matter whether you have feelings that you can't control. What matters is what I think. I will judge. You know, here's a ceremony. 
God is so gentle with his people, right? Here's a ceremony that you can go through, but at the end of the day, I'm the one who's going to judge. If she's innocent, if she's guilty, I'll be the one to punish her. Right? Not you. I will punish her. And if she's innocent, her vindication is going to be obvious to everyone. Right? That's what's happening in this story. God is saying he will not allow his daughters to be at the whim of his sons. When read in that light, what you see is that once again, the law of God is showing itself to be remarkably advanced for its time. Remarkably merciful and even-handed. All of this simply goes to show that, that God's people are supposed to be different. They're distinct from the nations. They don't look like the other nations. God, God's holiness necessitates a like holiness in his people, and it precipitates that holiness as well. We see this most of all, of course, in the person of, of Jesus Christ, who eventually comes and brings this holiness to light. And in fact, one of the things that I was considering this week is, as I was thinking about how to wrap this message up was just how the life of Jesus dovetails with this fifth chapter of Numbers. Because as we read through Numbers chapter 5, we, we encounter this personal uncleanness. You know, the ways, all these ways that people become unclean, and it's hard to read that and not think of how Jesus embraced exactly all of these kinds of uncleanness. Right? Do you think it's a mistake that the Gospels tell us about Jesus going and deliberately laying his hands on those with leprosy and skin disease? Deliberately going and touching a woman with a discharge and healing her? And by the way, when Jesus touches those who are ceremonially unclean, he does not become unclean. He imparts his cleanness, doesn't he? Jesus, when he touches the dead, does not become unclean. He gives his life to the dead. Or we can see these laws of restitution here and see connections to Jesus too. Do you remember the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19? Remember Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who was so excited to be with Jesus, he said, I'm going to give, if I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to give not just a fifth, 20%, I'm going to give four times back. Not just 20%, but 400%. And Jesus responds by saying, today salvation has come to this man's house which is not what he was supposed to say. What Jesus was supposed to say when Zacchaeus says, if I've defrauded anyone, I'll repay four times, what Jesus was supposed to say was, that's good, but then also go to the temple and offer the atoning sacrifice as Moses talks about in Numbers chapter five, and then you'll be good. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, today salvation has come. Why? Because he had come. <laughs> he had come to his house. He is the salvation. He is the atoning sacrifice. And even in this strange, obscure story or, 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 or um, provision for what to do when, when a man suspects his wife of infidelity and the, the dust and the water, even there, we read it and we remember how Jesus reacted when they brought him a woman, not just suspected of adultery, but caught in adultery in John 8. Do you remember? And it says, Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust. Remember? Everybody spends so much time in John 8 asking themselves, what was it? What was it that Jesus was writing in the dust? And everybody has their own pet interpretation. Everybody has their own suspicion about what Jesus was writing. Brothers and sisters, it does not matter. It doesn't matter what he was writing in the dust. What matters is who was writing. You see, that's the connection. The connection between John 8 and Numbers 5 
is that it's the same finger writing. It's the same lawgiver speaking. It's the same God demanding that he alone be allowed to judge. Jesus in John 8 is saying the same thing that God is saying in Numbers 5. You may not pass judgment. I will judge. It was, after all, the same finger, right, that etched the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone that drew in the dust at that woman's feet. It's the same person, the same lawgiver, the same Christ. God's holiness necessitates and in Christ precipitates the holiness of his people. And there's one final little hint of this truth that I want to lay before you before we close today. And that has to do with one little preposition that occurs in the first verse of the first chapter of Numbers. So turn back there, and then we'll close. Numbers 1, verse 1. Numbers 1, verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. I don't know if you picked up on it as we were reading it a few minutes ago, but this is simultaneously very similar to and vastly different than the first verse of Leviticus. If you go back to the first verse of Leviticus, it will also say that the Lord spoke to Moses. It'll also make reference to Mount Sinai, the wilderness of Sinai. It will also make reference to the tent of meeting. But in Leviticus 1.1, it says the Lord spoke to Moses from the tent of meeting. And here it says the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. It's one little preposition. In Hebrew, it's one letter difference. But it's all the difference, right? It's one of the things that we talked about all through Leviticus. In Leviticus, as Leviticus starts, Moses is outside the tent. He can't get in. He can't get in to be with God because of the unholiness that separates him. But because God, through his provision of sacrifice, through his chosen means of salvation, made holiness possible for his people, because of that, Moses was able to go in. And so here, when we open numbers, Moses is there inside. He's in the presence of Yahweh. Unholy humanity in the presence of holy God only possible because of the sacrifice. And we know all of those sacrifices of Leviticus all pointed forward to the final sacrifice of Jesus. God's holiness necessitates the holiness of his people, yes, but his holiness also precipitates it. It makes it possible. Give thanks to God for his holiness that he gives to you in Christ. Give thanks to him in silence right now. And then after just a minute, we'll wrap things up by singing together one more time.